putting out to sea, we ran a straight course to Samothrace. The we is referring to Dr. Luke and the Apostle Paul and the others. So before then it was they, and now they are joined with Luke, and so he begins to talk about we. Now just keep that in your minds. We'll come back to that thought in a little bit, but if you turn to Philippians with me, Philippians chapter 1. We are going to intro the book of Philippians this morning, and so there are a series of questions we're going to ask. And there's great things about this book. It is a unique book, and there's a lot of reasons for its uniqueness. And one of them we'll see is the kind of history, the background that we have about the writing of this particular letter that we call Philippians. Because it is that, it is a letter, although we're used to referring to these as books of the Bible, and so it'll be referred to as such sometimes in our conversations. But sometimes we forget that it's actually a letter, or the Greek word epistle. I choose to use the word epistle more often than the word letter because it's the word of God. It is a letter, but it's not like any other kind of letter. So although epistle means the same thing as letter, I feel like it's a little bit more, right? than just a mere letter, but that is what we're dealing with. And its title is To the Philippians, and so what I want to do this morning is gain an understanding of this place, this city, these people. What is the background to the writing of this letter? Because all of that is important for us to understand this book and the truths that it contains for us. So I begin with this quote, and it says, God can't give us peace and joy apart from himself because there is no such thing. If I could say anything, it is this. When we walk into the book of Philippians, we will find this, that Paul is going to talk about joy. It is one of the major themes in this book, although it is not the theme of this book. And he is also going to talk about the issue of peace in chapter 4. But neither of these things can be had without God. And he understands this very well. So we will find that although joy is a theme of this book, a very important theme of this book, you can't have joy without Christ. And Christ is the ultimate theme of this book and his sufficiency for us. We understand this because the first chapter, chapter 1 of Philippians, if you want to go through and count it for yourself, but the name Christ, the designation as the Messiah, is used 18 times in chapter 1 alone. Over 30 times in the entire letter itself. From that alone we know who the subject is. Right? But when you have a relationship with Christ, you can have the joy that Paul talks about. You can have the peace that Paul talks about. So he is going to take us on this journey, but it's interesting that as I started thinking about the book of Philippians, there are a lot of familiar statements that go through this book. I'm sure we probably all have seen these plaques on people's walls, or maybe we have them on our own walls, but verses that we've seen over the years, like, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, one of my all-time favorites. Or only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Or in chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves if we only live that way on a daily basis. Chapter 2, verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves which is also in Christ Jesus. Or 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. All of these verses are familiar to us. 
4.4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And we sing the song, right? We all know these lines from Philippians. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Or another favorite, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. All of these things are familiar to us, but there is a problem with these when they become so familiar to us. In other words, sometimes things from Philippians, they become so domesticated that we lose the significance of what is being said. And oftentimes we can understand these phrases, but we take them out of their given context and we sort of tend to sentimentalize them and then we end up losing the depth of the truth that they communicate to us because they are rooted in a context for us. In other words, when we talk about rejoicing in the Lord, some have taken this as sort of this motto for a superficial happiness that they chant it like a mantra that somehow they're going to see the silver lining, right? But when you actually look at Philippians and you see the deep theological truths in which this exhortation is rooted in, we realize that there's something so much more profound about this. It isn't just mere happiness. This is a God-given joy. But it is a peculiar joy. So I'm going to refer to that as that throughout this letter, that this is a peculiar joy. The joy of Philippians is grounded in deep theological truths and therefore it isn't a superficial happiness. It's a spiritual reality. It isn't merely spontaneous. It isn't some mere impulse that comes. We're not talking about some sort of chemical reaction to a good moment in our life. It is about a disposition. It is about an attitude. And Paul is going to come to these thoughts over and over. Chapter 2, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. He is going to deal with what is down inside. Nothing superficial here. It's deep, deep reality. And I love this book, and I love the truths that are here, but we have to look at it in context. So when I was teaching in the seminary overseas, this is one of my favorite words, and I had the brother say it every time in class. Context, context, context. They had nightmares about context, but they understood the significance about context. So we're going to see that this morning as we answer a series of questions. But we have to understand that this is an integrated whole. This is one whole letter. It's not several letters. Some have held this in the past. And part of the reason for this is, if you notice, turn with me to chapter 3, verse 1. Now notice how Paul begins chapter 3, verse 1. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. So we might read this and think, finally, okay, he's coming to an end. But he doesn't stop there. <laughs> Paul's a rambler. He tends to do this, right? But we would think, well, finally, he's bringing this to a conclusion. Now turn with me to chapter 4, verse 8. 
Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, right? And so he returns again to this thought of finally, and we think, okay, now he's going to finally end. But then we find there's more exhortations that are to come. And so some have assumed because of these statements of finally, finally, that he has taken these letters over time. These letters have been combined together, two or three of them, to make one whole letter. And I'm going to tell you right now, it's all one whole letter, exactly how Paul wrote it. So we're going to see why he uses the word finally. But just to say that this is one whole, if you will, as we look at this. And the structure will bear this out as we walk through this together. But I give you this quote from Silva, and this is important. He says, No textual detail ought to be interpreted in isolation from the larger context of which it is a part. Now this is important. When we look at Scripture, you never take a verse out of context. If you're going to quote the verse, know the context it's a part of. Otherwise, you could be missing the point of the passage. And oftentimes this happens. Proof texts. Everyone has them. We do this for our theology. We give our proof text for the doctrine that we hold to. But oftentimes, we don't even know the context that verse came out of. So how do we know for sure that that is the message being taught in that passage? Happens time and time and time again. Context is important. So we're going to see this from Philippians because he is going to talk about the issue of this and this weaving together of the, all these words and phrases. But here's what we have to realize. There's two different types of context. There is literary context, so we're going to talk about the Greek of it. And I'm just going to tell you, Jeremiah and I are walking through the Greek text of Philippians together. So if you have any questions, ask him. All right. The other context is historical context, the life setting, right? Because we have a tendency to somehow think that these things that were written down for us were done in a vacuum. But this was written in time and space. This is a historical person writing to a historical person at a historical period of time. And so we're going to look at this issue and we are going to look at this as we walk through Philippians because it is necessary for us to understand these things to properly interpret the book of Philippians. And as we walk through, I'll just highlight a few things for you. But from here, we're going to answer a series of questions. And the first one is this. When and where was Philippians written? These are questions that we should ask ourselves. Every time we come to a book, ask yourself, when and where was it written? We want to know who wrote it. We want to know the time period because we want to understand the life setting in which it was composed, right? Because it helps us then to interpret what is here because that's our task. And this is important. This is a life thing, okay? So I'm just going to tell you, we have this happening in our society, the Constitution, okay? There are those who believe that when you read the Constitution, you need to understand it, how the original authors intended it to be meant. Then once you understand that and the principles thereof, then you can apply those to life now. So we saw the Supreme Court make some decisions based on a proper understanding of the Constitution. However, there are those in our society who believe that it is a living document the Constitution. Now that sounds kind of good, but when you understand what they mean by this, it's not so good. What they mean by a living Constitution or a living document is that the meaning is always changing with every generation. 
So it doesn't matter what the original authors meant or the intent that was when they wrote these things down. That doesn't matter. We can give it any meaning we want to. And usually it's always going to be those who are the elite at the top. So they will tell us what it means and how then to apply it. That's a huge issue, is it not? It's the same when we come to the Word of God. So if we're going to handle our Constitution that way, we ought to handle the Word of God that way, right? It's vitally important for us. So we're going to do this, the composition of the letter. The author unquestionably is the Apostle Paul. He states this in chapter 1, verse 1. This is the salutation to the letter, the epistle. He says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. Now we know that Paul wrote this letter, and I want to show you an example. And this is important because we'll come back later and ask ourselves, why then does he mention Timothy alongside of himself? He partly answers that in the letter for us in chapter 2. But here's what's interesting. If you turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul is going to mention himself and Timothy alongside of him. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Now, what's interesting is that if you read on in Colossians chapter 1, Paul goes on to say, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard. Now, I'm just going to stop. This is just an aside. I'm going to chase the rabbit for a second. Just a second, all right? And then we'll, we'll come back to this. But notice the statement in verse 4. Since we heard. Colossae, if you read in chapter 2, this was a church that, that Paul had never been to. He didn't know them face to face. The church wasn't planted by him. It was planted by somebody else. So when he writes to Colossae, he tells them, from the moment we heard about what is going on in your lives, we have not ceased to pray for you. Think about that now. So he goes on in verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask. Let me ask you something. How's your prayer life? I always get rocked when I read Paul's prayer life. Why? These were people he didn't know. He just heard about. And from the moment he heard, he prayed for them. Ceaselessly prayed for them. How many times do we hear about ministries or churches or people that are struggling and how often do we pray for them? Maybe right when we first hear, but we don't keep praying for them. Paul says, I do this all the time. But then when you look at all the other letters, you realize he does this for every church, even ones that he planted. And he prays for every single person in that body. How's your prayer life? Right? But what's interesting is when we come back to Philippians, he mentions himself and Timothy, but notice what he says in verse 3. I, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, and this I pray on behalf of you. The focus is on the Apostle Paul. He is the author. So we ask the question, why does he mention Timothy alongside of himself then? We have no we's here at all. So I leave that for you to ponder because we'll come back to that next week. The circumstances of the writing of this letter. This is a prison letter. <laughs> this is a prison letter. In other words, we're not talking about theory here. 
Whatever Paul tells us about Christ and the joy that he has and the confidence he has and the comfort that he has and all of these things, this is in a real life situation. And this is in a very difficult real life situation. This isn't pretty for Paul. And I'm going to tell you historically. So he's taken into custody in Jerusalem. You can read about this in Acts. So if you want to go back for next week, read Acts 16 to 28. And that's the backdrop for this letter. Paul is in Rome, right? But before that, he was in Caesarea for two years. He was under arrest in Caesarea. Then he gets transported to Rome, and he is now there, and this is from where he writes. So he says in chapter 1 of Philippians, verse 12, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known. Verse 14 of chapter 1, And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, literally my bonds. Verse 17, The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment or in my bonds. This was not a pretty situation for Paul. He is an optimistic prisoner. I want to know what it's like to be an optimistic prisoner. Or as John Bunyan, when he served time in prison for 12 years because he would not cease preaching the Word of God, when they asked him to cease preaching the Word of God for 12 years, he did time, hard time. And from his very lips, he says, I thank you, prison. Why? <laughs> Why? How can people like that say things like that? It's a peculiar joy that we have in Christ. Very peculiar. So some scholars, it's interesting, they've suggested that Philippians was written from Ephesus, others from Caesarea, but the majority hold that it was written from Rome, and it was written about A.D. 62. Now this is important to keep in mind the date, right? So Paul planted this church. If you go back to Acts 16, Paul planted this church between A.D. 49, which is the time of the Jerusalem Council, to 52. So it was likely AD 50 was when he was in Philippi and he planted the church there. This is now AD 62 as he's writing this letter. Ten years later. Think about his prayer life when you read this letter. Ten years he prayed for these people. Ten years he prayed for them by name. Ten years he lifted up in prayer before God consistently in his life. Think about Colossae, people he's never seen before. Think about Philippi. Go read 1 Thessalonians. Same statement. I pray for each and every one of you. So this is the setting then. There's no evidence that Paul was in prison in Ephesus. Unanimous support from the early church that this was Rome. We know this from the context. Notice chapter 1, verse 13 of Philippians. Paul says, so that my imprisonment and the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. He's in Rome. And then he says in chapter 4 of this same letter, he greets all those, those from Caesar's household, greet the church as he is writing to them. So he is definitely in Rome when he wrote this. He has appealed to Caesar. This was his right as Roman citizen, and now he faces a judiciary, and there is potential death for him. Again, he is going to talk about, I rejoice, and again, I say rejoice. This is a peculiar joy. This is a peculiar joy. 
the Roman church also, he is sitting in prison in Rome. He is writing to the church in Philippi. He is sitting in prison and there are believers that are trying to bring him more pain while he's in prison. He deals with this in chapter 1. So not only is he suffering, but there is insult to his injury. And his response is a peculiar joy. In this, I will rejoice. Why? How can he say this thing? So it's interesting because Paul, this has been his desire to go to Rome. He wanted to go there as a preacher, so now he's there as a prisoner. But yet he's preaching. So here is a thought that comes to ponder. Our disappointments may actually be God's appointments. See, this trip didn't work out like I thought. He wanted to go to Rome, but he didn't plan on going the way that God planned for him to go. Two years in Caesarea, now he's in Rome. Who knows how long he's going to spend there? He doesn't know. He may end up dying. Not only that, but he has believers there who are trying to cause him more harm while he's in prison, and this is what is going on. And he could sit there and stew in his disappointment. I didn't plan for this, God. I wasn't expecting this. This isn't what I designed for my life. And yet, he is joyful, and he preaches. I don't know that I would do that. When I have my plans and they don't go how I plan, <laughs> my disappointments, right, overtake me. So what can we know about Philippi? We know Paul's situation. He's in prison. He's in Rome. This is a prison letter. But what do we know about Philippi? The first thing he does is he reveals to us the geographical location he talks to the saints, chapter 1, verse 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. So there's the geographical location, but he is going to talk about their eternal heavenly location. And he's going to do this from chapter 1, verse 27, and chapter 3, verse 20. Now this is an important city because it sits on the Ignatian Way, the Via Ignatia. This was a major highway in the Roman Empire. So all trade went through this city. So there were going to be strangers passing through this town. It was the link between the East and the West. And in this town, we know historically... These colonies were established using retired veterans from the Roman army. And they would be given parcels, parcels of land because they were always going to be obedient to Rome, right? And so therefore they would use them to colonize. So there were veterans who were there. The town, Paul or Luke refers to it in chapter 16 of Acts verse 12. He refers to it as a colony. This is the only time this Latin word is used in the New Testament. And it's used in reference to Philippi. It was a leading polis, a leading city in the Roman Empire. Thus the citizens of this city were Roman citizens. Now this is important. You can say, so what? Why do I need to know this, right? I'll just tell you, I, I read history, but not because I want to become a historian. Same reason why I studied languages and linguistics, not because I want to be someone who is rooted in that. I do it for a means to an end. I want to know God, and I want to know Him accurately. So history is important to me. Because it helps me understand the life context in which these things are written. These were Roman citizens, which meant that their names were in the annals of Rome. This is a huge deal. We need to understand this. Just like for so many here in America, being an American is a huge thing. 
They're very nationalistic. They are very prideful about their place in this country. Well, that's the same for the Philippians. They are true Romans. In other words, they had privileges as Romans. They were exempted from oversight, a provincial governor. They were immune from poll and property taxes. Wouldn't it be if that would be awesome, right? American citizens, we don't have to pay taxes, but everyone else who comes from everywhere else, they get to pay the taxes for us. So this was their life. They had rights to hold full ownership over their land according to Roman rules. There are some other interesting things that were theirs by right of Roman citizenship. The Philippians, they were free from scourging. They couldn't be beaten. Now keep in mind when Paul is in Philippi, what happened to Paul in Philippi? He and Silas were taken into custody and they were what? They were beaten. That's a huge no-no. That's a major crime. When the Roman magistrates found out that they beat Roman citizens, they were terrified. They went, right, and they wanted to get them out of the city quietly. Paul says, oh no, we're not going silent. Not on your life. We're going to play this thing out. You know what's amazing about that episode? Go read it. I, I believe that Paul used his Roman citizenship to provide a buffer for the church in Philippi. Why? Because they want him to go silently. He says, no, I'm not going silently. And not only that, but he went to meet with the brethren in Lydia's household. Then he left town. So it's interesting then when you read also and understand that they also had a freedom from arrest. You couldn't just haul off a Roman citizen to jail. That was a major violation. That also happened to Paul and Silas. And here's what's interesting. Why didn't they say this then? Like when you read Acts 16, Paul doesn't say it up front. I'm a Roman citizen. Why are you doing this to me? He doesn't say so till after it happens. Till after the Philippian jailer comes to salvation, right? Why does he wait? Not only that, but they had a right to appeal to the emperor. Thus, the Apostle Paul appealed to Caesar, and this led to Rome. So all of these rights they enjoyed, they imitated and copied Rome. Philippi was known for being Roman miniature. Everything Rome did, they did. They even spoke Latin as the official language. They knew Greek because that was the language that was used to communicate throughout the whole entire empire, but they used Latin. This is why it was a badge of honor to be called a Roman colony. So all of this is important. We need to understand this. Why? Because notice chapter 1, verse 27. Paul says this to the Philippian believers. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now this word for conduct yourselves in the King James Version, it's translated conversation. Now in Old English, conversation meant how you lived your life. In other words... To put it in contemporary language, what does the language of your life communicate to people rather than the language of your mouth? But we don't use the word that way anymore to talk about our lifestyle conversation. And so we have conduct. But literally in the Greek, Paul says this, live as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So what is he hinting at here? And you must know that this particular term in the Greek was used of life of a free man in a free Roman colony. 
However, he's going to put a different slant on it. So the great Greek scholar Lightfoot understood this, and this is how he renders this verse, verse 27. But under all circumstances, do your duty as good citizens of a heavenly kingdom and act worthily of the gospel of Christ. So we might miss the significance of this statement that Paul makes in regards to living in light of a different citizenship. You understand being a Roman, but that's not where your allegiance lies. It lies to heaven. Ah. So what does that say to us? So some have titled the entire letter as the earthly walk of a heavenly people. We definitely live in this world, but our allegiance is to be to heaven. So he reminds them, you live here on earth, but you are, chapter 3, verse 20, you are citizens in heaven. So we don't live a good life and a life that we're supposed to. We don't live a moral life so that we can earn our way into heaven in Christ We already belong to heaven. And therefore, we're supposed to live out that relationship. So where does my allegiance lie? So when things happen and I have to respond by the word of God to what happens in this society and in this nation, I respond biblically. I can't respond politically. That's not the ultimate agenda for me. You do what you do. (laughs) My allegiance must lie elsewhere. And sometimes there is conflict. Sometimes I can work the two together. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, there are too many who mistake as American being the same thing as Christian. And they're not. They're not. So while we live on earth, our citizenship is in heaven. And so therefore, he says in Colossians 3.1, which was written at the exact same time as Philippians, we should therefore seek those things which are above and store up our treasures in heaven. If we are wise, we will gear our goals to heavenly gains. And so he does this in chapter 3, verses 17 and following. He's going to call us to follow heavenly directed examples and focus on heavenly expectations. We have a Savior who's going to come from heaven and call us home. What can we know about God's church in Philippi? We're going to end with this. I I leave the last for you to meditate as we come back to this because we will look at the overall theme of this letter. It's interesting that when we look at the, the letter of Philippians and look back in Acts, we realize that this was less Jewish and more Gentile church. The names that we find of the individuals that are mentioned are most Greek and Roman, not very many Jews. This is why when Paul came to Philippi, right, He spoke Jewish, right? I mean, when they looked at the way he looked, they're thinking this man is not a citizen of this city. So they made an assumption. He's not a Roman. However, Paul was Roman by birth, right? That's a huge deal. They misread the packaging, and it was a big boo-boo on their part. But we understand that this is the makeup of the church. The church was the first church planted in Macedonia. But it's God's church. And this is what's amazing about this church. And that we need to understand about every church and every local manifestation of the body of Christ. It's God's. It's not mine. 
It's not the leadership's. It's not yours. It's his. Far too many pastors don't get this. My elders and my people and my this and my that. It's not yours. Hate to break it to you. They're not your sheep. You're just an under-shepherd. You're an underling and you're going to account to the great shepherd for how you take care of his sheep. So we have to be cautious when we call it my church, right? It's not just an issue of semantics. Paul understands this, especially in light of the planting of this church. So this happened on his second missionary journey. If you go back and read Acts, this is after the Jerusalem Council in chapter 15 of Acts. Chapter 16, we see in verses 1 through 5, Timothy is going to join Paul and Silas. They're going to receive this vision that comes in chapter 16, verses 6 through 10. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been prevented by the Holy Spirit from speaking the message in the province of Asia. I mean, think about that statement. The Spirit kept them from proclaiming the gospel in Asia. Well, aren't we supposed to proclaim the gospel everywhere? Why would he do this? Because this was now going to open up all of Europe. Which most of us, right? Our heritage goes back there. This was a major shift in the movement of the gospel. And, Paul was, and God was making it very clear to Paul, I've got this under control. This is my design, not yours. So they planned, right? God said, no, no, no. So when they came to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus said, no, you're not doing that either. And we don't know what he did to let them know this is not happening, but the door closed and hard. <laughs> right? So they passed through Mycenae and they went down to Troas. So Paul has this vision in the night. A Macedonian man. Now here's what's intriguing to me. A Macedonian man. Who's the first convert that we know of? The first disciple made in Philippi? Lydia. You're going to find that women are prominent in the church in Philippi. Which is very intriguing to me. She's the first. Then the Philippian jailer in his household, right? After Lydia and her household. But he has this vision. Says, come over to Macedonia and help us. And after Paul saw the vision, notice, we sought immediately to go over to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. So here's what's really cool about this. This statement of we, this is Luke joining them, right? So in Acts, there are these we sections. This is the first one, begins in chapter 16. Luke joins them here. How it all came about, we don't know, but Luke joins them here. He is going to use we for a bit, and then he's going to stop. What's going to happen? Luke is going to stay in Philippi. Well, Paul and them move on. So if you read Acts chapter 20, verse 6, you will see the we picked up again. We left Philippi and joined up with the others. So here's what happens. Luke joins Paul here. He goes into Philippi with Luke. He's a part of that church plant. He stays there in Philippi to help establish the church, I'm assuming. 
Then later, he is going to rejoin Paul in Acts chapter 20, verse 6. He is going to come out of Philippi, join Paul, and go on. And we are going to find from Colossians chapter 4 that Luke is here in Rome with Paul as he serves his prison sentence. Just a thought. It's interesting, isn't it? It's always interesting to me how many things God is doing behind the scenes. And we get these little pronouns, right, thrown at us. And we might think they're rather insignificant, but they're not. And Paul wants us to understand, and Luke wants us to understand, this was a significant church. This was by God's design. The providence of God was in this. This was the first church in Europe by God's design. So that we would then hear the gospel. I mean, you think about the early missions movements, all came out of Europe. So they arrive in Philippi in chapter 16, verses 11 through 15. He and Silas are going to be thrown into the inner prison, put in stocks. Earthquake comes, right? They're rejoicing. Here's what's interesting to me. So he goes to Philippi, plants the church, he's in prison. And there's joy along with the suffering. Here he's in Roman prison. All these years later, ten years later, he's sitting in prison again. And there is suffering and there's joy. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? That's a great history. We know all of this just from Scripture. All of that is important for us to understand the things that he says to this church. Now, I leave you to ponder this last question. What do we know about the overall thought of the letter? I know that there are some who think that the, the theme of Philippians is joy. It is definitely a theme, a major theme. But it is not the theme. The theme of Philippians is Christ. Because without Christ, there is no joy. Without Christ, there is no joy. And thus, when we come to Philippians, we'll see Paul says, I want to know him and I want to make him known. And if I could, that is the summation of the letter of Philippians. I want to know him and I want to make him known. Why? Because he is the source of our joy and he is the source of our peace. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we're so thankful for the preservation of your word. So thankful for your providence and history, the way that you have directed and guided and, and led your people and continue to do so. The way that your spirit works in us. We're so thankful that there is this message of good news, Father, that you have us to deliver to the world. And for those lives that you have worked in in Philippi and the record that we have of that and what you have done in and through them, We just rejoice. We look at the life of Paul and the suffering that he went through and so much of it undeserved and the injustices that he suffered and yet he had such great joy. A peculiar joy. Because it's a joy that only comes through relationship with Christ Jesus. We're so thankful that we can know him and we desire to know him more. We know that he is incomprehensible as God, but we also know that we can know him intimately and truly. And as we know him, we want to make him known. 
We want to declare the majesty of who he is throughout this world. So I ask, Father, as we go out this week into the workplace and, and everywhere else that we might encounter others who are in rebellion against you. May we seize every moment to declare the majesty of Christ. May we make him known and the salvation that we have in him, the peace and the joy that we have in him. May we allow ourselves and may we make ourselves known by the fact that we are yours. May we not identify ourselves by the things of this world, but by the things that are of heaven. For we know that Christ is our life. And we rejoice in that today. Praise you and thank you for all that you're doing in our lives here and now, Father, and the way that you are using us in different ways in the lives of others. And we ask that you receive all the glory and the honor that your name is due. We pray these things in your name.